millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey Chris, do you think it's narcissistic that I got my own podcast theme song stuck in my head the other day? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I do. It's a fair <laughs> point. How are you today? Good. My name is Christopher. Good to be here. Good to be back doing the podcast that's all about the news for yous. You like that little? You like that little? That's nice. You should write copyright jingles. Ooh, that's an idea. Maybe I'm in the wrong industry. Yeah, maybe you are. <laughs> How are you, Harry? I'm very well. Yeah, I'm good. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about news. We're uh, debuting a slightly new format today, uh, which is that in our patented fortnightly fact fight, mm. uh, we're not going to do as many like local stories. We're going to focus on big international issues and how they relate to us. Uh, and we're going to do less of them so we can actually just have a bit more of a chat about them because mm. we feel like that's our strength is just talking shit yeah because well, we found as well when we were really trying to find like some sort of pertinent information to like brisbane or southeast queensland we was getting a lot of oh daryl's crashed his you and just like <laughs> shit that no one wants to you know that we really don't need to spend time talking about also we really wanted to start appealing to our uh, north antarctic audience and i feel like yeah when we were focusing on brisbane mm. that just wasn't coming across as interesting yeah. did you know that metallica once played in antarctica i do now that's a that is a real fact you can look it up they did a, they did a concert in antarctica that's the kind of quality content I feel like people come yeah. to the podcast for. <laughs> I, you know, all jokes aside, I very much enjoyed that fact. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's your, that, that's your, your cool trivia fact for the week. Unprepared. Yeah. Improvised fact. Yeah. It's, it's an improvised fact. That's right, that's right. That's how those work. <laughs> um, all right, shall we slide into the news? Let's slide into those news. You want to start us off with our first big international story? Absolutely. Well, our uh, big first international story is probably the biggest international story happening right now is uh, Syria slash Turkey, the situation there. Oh boy, the Middle East. Yes, the, yes, the Middle East. Things are still happening there. There was a big debate uh, in this week's podcast over whether we actually did our deep dive on the Middle East this week. Mm. Uh, and we will do one, just because it is so horrendously complex. Everyone talks mm. about it. It's kind of essential uh, for your day-to-day knowledge of current affairs to know, because it affects foreign policy, it affects domestic policy. Mm. Uh, but we decided this week we're not going to. So Yeah, yeah, because we... And we'll get into that a bit more later. Yeah. But uh, just for this story now... Uh, First point is that U.S. forces have withdrawn from the Kurdish border region as Turkish forces move into Syria. So, yeah, this is massive because it's it's a real uh, show of Donald Trump's new foreign policy right, yeah. as a president. Like, you know, um, particularly during the Obama era, uh, America was making a real show of getting involved in um, international conflict and playing as a global uh, peacekeeping force. Mm. And this is the complete opposite of this. And as soon as they withdrew, very predictably, Turkey invaded yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, because we were obviously chatting about this before the podcast, mm-hmm. Turkey sort of somewhat requested the US to pull out, and they just did? It's not so much that they requested, it's more like, hey guys, we know you're considering pulling out, we'll probably invade if you do. You cool just with that? Just letting you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and Donald Trump was like, yeah, right. I am cool with that. Because if the US had stayed there, would there be the potential for a conflict between Turkey and the US, or what would the situation there have been? 
um, it would be a lot more complicated, which is potentially what Donald Trump wanted to avoid. Right, right. That it certainly seems like it was the easiest solution for, for the US. Well, yeah, just get it out of the way, right, basically. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, the people now fighting against Turkey are the Kurdish forces in Syria, mm. um, who in the last few years, America has been backing up in the fight against ISIS mm. and Islamic State. Um, so whether they would have backed them up in an invasion from Turkey... Yeah. Um, is a question to which I do not know the answer. Well, yeah, that's crazy to think about, really, isn't um, it? Yeah. But regardless of it all, this is what happened, is uh, Donald Trump has unilaterally declared that US forces are withdrawing, and consequentially, Turkey has invaded. And mm. now um, over 100 people have been killed already. Yeah, uh, um, Turkey has claimed that these people were terrorists, um, but I, this is all hearsay, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we know for a fact, well, that uh, up to, I believe, nine civilians have already been killed. Yeah, right. Yeah. I hadn't seen that fact. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've seen that one floating around. Uh, we've already seen that 65,000 civilians have been displaced. Yeah, with, uh, I think the ABC said this morning, uh, 405,000 had the potential to be affected Wow. Um, in this conflict. We'll uh, get back to you with some fact checks in the show yeah. notes uh, for the actual figures. Yeah. And it should be mentioned that the Kurdish have had a pretty rough run of it lately. Yeah, this isn't like a new development for these people. This is this is an ongoing. Yeah, well, Kurdish is a very broad term. Basically, like anyone in the Middle East, of course, has had a really rough go of it. But the yeah, um, yeah. the area of Kurdistan uh, is a historical and cultural area that encompasses bits of Iraq, bits of Iran, uh, bits of Syria, and bits of Turkey. Mm. So you know, some of the most volatile uh, geographical right, places in the world right yeah, now. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not been an easy recent history for these guys no. at all. Um, so yeah, do we have anything else to say on this one, Harry? Uh, not unless you've got any questions. I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot of complicated things mm. with uh, like um, isolationism versus globalism and whether, yeah, yeah. whether America should be intervening and um, uh, Obama's militarism versus Trump's isolationism mm. uh, and which is actually the correct route and which causes less deaths in the, wrong, in the long run and how Australia pertains to all this. Well, that was going to be my question is, yeah, right. where do we fit into all this? Well, we fit in because we're military, uh, like America is our biggest military ally. Right. Uh, and in terms of foreign policy with military, we go where they go. Yeah. Um, Did we have troops in Syria? Yeah. Or, or do uh, yeah, we? Yeah, we absolutely have troops in Syria. Right, right so they're, they're now. Yes. Right. Um, they are there with uh, Canadian and French and um, any other American allies who were with them fighting in Syria. So, yeah, that it does directly affect our troops. Um, I'm not sure how our troops were affected with Donald Trump saying that he was withdrawing from right, yeah, Syria. Yeah. Um, again, that might that'll be something when we look into further when we actually do a deep dive on this issue. Yeah, no worries. Well, I suppose we'll leave that one there for now and we'll keep a close eye on it. Absolutely. No worries. What have we got up next, Harry? So, up next, unfortunately, Japanese super typhoon. Yeah. Uh, God, what was the name of the typhoon? Oh, I've completely forgotten. We didn't write it down either. Uh, but Typhoon Hajibus. It's totally Typhoon Hajibus. Typhoon Hajibus. It was on the tip of my tongue. Uh, yep. It must have it popped into our brain at the exact same time. It's not at all like we paused. Incredible. Um, <laughs> this this comes only a month after the last typhoon to hit Japan. Uh, this one is larger and threatens the Tokyo Bay area. Yeah, so they're still reeling and trying to repair after last month's right, typhoon. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's been projected that this one could be more powerful than the 1958 typhoon that left over a 1,000 people dead. Yeah, it, I, I think it should be pointed out there that hopefully we can assume, you know, touch wood, that the kind of things in place nowadays are a bit better than they were 
you know, 60 years ago. Yeah, well, so um, thankfully, Japan have a, a really good disaster authority. Of course, right, yeah, uh, yeah. And they've already warned that up to 5 million people may have to be evacuated. That's huge. Yeah, it's ridiculous, particularly right now, as they're currently hosting the Rugby World Cup. Right, yes. So, sorry, sports fans. Yeah, well, so it just means like there's so many people in the city. Right, yeah, even yeah. more than usual. And this is Tokyo we're talking about. It's yeah. one of the most populous you know, cities in the world. Absolutely, and it is heading straight for Tokyo. Yeah. It's, yeah, it is. Um, stay safe, everyone. I don't know when in Tokyo is listening to this. Well, in case that they are, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all domestic flights have been cancelled at the moment for the yep. foreseeable future. Yep, so uh, if that, well, you know, the situation won't be going on in two weeks, but um, keep in touch with your local authorities, check Facebook, you know how to keep in touch if you've got anyone who yeah. is in Tokyo. Um, yeah, I guess that's really all we can say on that one. Yeah. Shall we hop on to Brexit once again? I feel like we're going to be talking about Brexit almost every episode. Yeah, that's <laughs> the ongoing issue with every international current affairs program. Yeah. Uh, and, but all we really have to say about today is that we've had uh, Irish and UK leaders, the Prime Ministers, uh, had a meeting and claimed that there is a road to a deal before the ever-approaching October 31st Brexit deadline. Now, this doesn't sound like much of a statement. It's like, oh yeah, there is a way of getting a deal. But this it is, is a, it's a big thing, <laughs> um, because this is on the back of uh, Boris Johnson unveiled his uh, plans for a deal... Mm. to the UK Parliament and it caused outrage in Ireland yeah. because yeah, one of the main problems with Brexit has been the Irish border because of course the Irish troubles back last century mm. and the Good Friday Agreement put a ceasefire, uh, put a stop to all that but now we're going into um, a whole new era of possible trouble. Yeah, which is just terrifying when you think about what the IRA was sort of doing back in those days. Yeah, absolutely. And like one of the this leaders is, yeah. of one of the main Irish parties, Sinn Féin, I mm. think I'm pronouncing that right, Sinn Féin, has come out and said uh, that this completely undoes. It completely yeah. undoes the Good Friday Agreement, yeah. which is a big statement because like, you know, the Good Friday Agreement was pr what stopped the bloodshed in the first place. Yeah. So things are looking really dicey in Ireland and for Boris Johnson to not really have much of a plan um, or that his plan, in the words of Irish ministers, is going to do more harm than good. Like yeah. that's a, that's a big thing. Yeah. So this UA, uh, UK proposal would incite some goods checks between Ireland and Northern Ireland, but not on the border itself. Yeah. Well, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Well, no <laughs> one does. That's the problem. Boris Johnson. He's tried to kind of make a compromise because mm. you know obviously now because they're both in the UN, the Republican Ireland and Britain have an open border. Right. Uh, which is kind of like what keeps the peace. Yeah. But if they crash out of the UN, the concern was that it could default back to a hard border, which could cause a lot more trouble because, you know, you've got two parts of Ireland who are completely mm. separated, family and friends and trade agreements and medical agreements. Mm. Um, so they're trying to figure out how to fix that, and it's been called the Irish backstop, yeah. um, which, you know, is a term you'll hear thrown about quite a bit. Yeah, because suddenly we have two countries that were in the European Union suddenly not being in the European Union. And it's like, how do we deal with that, considering that, you know, once upon a time they were the same country yeah. and they still have the closest possible ties. Right. Well, yeah, and there's families between the two countries yep. and all sorts of things. So it's just sort of not something that they're ready for. Yeah. So Boris Johnson has tried to come to a compromise where, like, the borders between uh, Southern Ireland and uh, Northern Ireland could be kind of softer. Yeah, but it's still not... It's very liminal. Yeah, it's well, very liminal. Uh, yeah. It's, there's not really any way to know what's being talked about. Um, UK Parliament is expected to debate the matter once more on the 19th of October, which is, what, like 12 days away from when the UK is just meant to magically fall out of the European Union? Yeah, on the 31st, on the Brexit deadline. Um, How the hell are we to be like expected to believe that this is going to work? 
Well, that's just, just it. Speak candidly. Like, yeah, well, Johnson's seen. trying his hardest to convince everyone that it's going to be fine. And he keeps saying that one way or another, uh, Britain is coming out on the 31st. Mm. But that's a very scary thing. Well, because we're do, weren't they meant to do it back in April or something for the first time? I think they've had it extended like three yeah. separate times mm. now. Um, thanks to the good grace of the, of the um, European Union. Right, right. Uh, but that grace is running out and their patience yeah. is running out. So, again, another one to keep watching. But I, as I said, I predict that we will be talking more and more about Brexit for many podcasts to come. Yeah, it's really coming to a head now. Mm. Um, we'll probably, actually, I think that might be our next, our next special. episode. Brexit special? Yeah, well, just ahead of the uh, October 31st deadline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who knows what's going to happen. Um, I saw an estimate the other day that it's quite possible that Boris Johnson could be the UK's shortest serving Prime Minister yes, yeah. of all time. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be interesting. I nearly said he's hoping, but we're impartial. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so that's our sort of fact fight for this week, I believe, Harry. Yeah, those are all our major uh, stories. Yes. Um, let's move on to our token feel-good story. Let's do it. Uh, now, we're going to be talking a bit about the environment and climate change later on in this episode. So we felt that our token feel-good story for the week should somewhat pertain uh, to this topic. Uh, and that is a story that we found on a website called City Lab. Um, yeah, we're definitely going to have to verify <laughs> this. But, uh, <laughs> but we're going to be, in the meantime, we're going to be optimistic. Yeah, uh, uh, it looks pretty credible based on our sort of looking into it. Based on the graphic design. Yeah, no, it looks pretty. Um, but it states that 30 major world cities have already reduced their carbon emissions by an average of 22%. So the cities represent almost 60 million urban citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a big deal. Like, I would say we'll go more into this um, as we go into our deep dive. It's not nearly enough, mm. but it does mean we've made some tangible progress. Yeah, so this organisation is called the C40 Coalition, which uh, consists of 94 member cities. Um, and it's confident that at least half of its members will reach peak emissions by 2020, which sounds like a bad thing, but is not. Because what they mean by that is that by 2020, all of or half of these cities, pardon me, will have reached uh, emissions maximum point, which they will not exceed again. Yes, and then start to head downhill. Right, like, correct. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. you know, theoretically. Yeah. Uh, so taking out the top spot was Copenhagen at 61% reductions since 1991. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's good. And we, we did have two cities on there. Uh, Sydney and Melbourne. Yes. Despite our um, pretty weak-ass positions on mm. climate change in general, yeah. uh, which we will talk about more right now. Yeah. Uh, so our deep dive for this week is all about climate change. What, about what, Harry? I've never heard about of it. About climate change, Chris. Wait. Well, we've already done this bit, I think. Yeah, no, we have done this bit. Climate change. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, starting off, I guess, let's do kid stuff. Let's talk about... Kids. Yeah, well, let's, no, let's start from the basics. Yeah. Because whenever you talk about a complex issue, it's always good to go from the ground up and start at the most basic building blocks because it causes so much confusion when people talk about complex, uh, complex topics mm. without knowing exactly, specifically, what they're talking about. Yeah, um, and so I believe to do that, we're going to read from the uh, NASA kindergarten to grade four explanation page on what the description of climate change is. Yeah, so we've taken a lot of our information um, from the NASA climate change uh, page, which... The inform the information section was hilariously condescending. Um, all right, so we are going into this conversation stating that climate change is unequivocally real and a genuine threat to human society. Uh, this is not an opinion of the podcast. This is a supported and verified fact mm. by every major reputable world science organization, including the United Nations, NASA, National Geographic, National Australian organizations such as CSIRO, 
in the Bureau of Meteorology. Yes, but I would like to interject there, Harry, play a bit of devil's advocate because science, uh, science change, climate change is denied uh, by a man named Keith I saw on the Channel 7 Facebook page whose profile picture is a boat and whose most, re- most recent status update simply read, up the... Br- <laughs> so obviously we take all valid opinions into account. I'm just saying you've got some dissenters, mate. And when you weigh every reputable science organisation in the world against Keith... Well, who's to say? (laughs) Anyway, climate change is real. Um, And let's talk a little bit about what climate change is, Mm. um, specifically what climate change in the form of global warming is. Uh, So global warming is primarily caused by what is known as the greenhouse effect, which is when radiatively active gases, i.e. greenhouse gases, in a planet's atmosphere radiate energy in all directions. Uh, This basically means that the atmosphere is full of gas, Um, the gas and the temperature is controlled by the amount of radiation, the amount of heat um, in the world's core and reaching the Earth from the sun, Mm -hmm. and the gases are what regulates that temperature. Right, so this is the thing that's meant to happen. Yeah, yeah, we we need this effect. Like, contrary to popular belief, greenhouse gases are not a bad thing. Mm. In fact, they're essential for life on Earth. Yeah, it's just become a very kind of dirty phrase. Yeah, absolutely. It's become kind of like a buzzword, a buzz phrase for climate change and things going badly but in reality it's called the greenhouse effect because Mm. what happens in a greenhouse yeah things grow yeah the problem more persists with how we as a species are accelerating or altering this process yeah so how we've affected it so humans have undoubtedly altered this process uh which has had a, a barrage of negative effects um so there has been a 45% increase in atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide since around 1750. Hmm, didn't something happen around 1750? It's the Industrial Revolution, Chris. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so we invented combustion engines, we started burning coal, uh, and this had an incredible effect on the climate. Basically, we released mm. more and more carbon dioxide, which built up in the atmosphere, which means that the Earth gets hotter and hotter uh, by default. Yeah. Um, and although this does happen naturally over time, it, this is an unprecedented increase. Right, this is an, a, an artificial increase, essentially. This is not something that's just meant to happen by creatures being alive on Earth. This is a direct result of our increasing industrialization and use of fossil fuels and things along this line. Absolutely, and the rapid change has had a, a variety of effects, mm. such as it is genuinely, measurably getting warmer. Um, they're estimating at the moment um, again this is off so NASA have done an amazing compilation on their website of a lot of the leading scientific resources the evidence and the effects Um, highly recommend checking it out we'll stick it in the show notes uh, because those guys tend to know what they're talking about yeah Um, and they've they're brilliant with citing their sources as Mm. well but they are estimating that the earth could be increasing by as much as 0.9 the temperature on earth sorry be increasing by as much as 0.9 Celsius a year, which doesn't sound like much, but if you really think about it, there's a, there's a, a lot of years happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you know, that's nearly one degree a year, mm. 20 years, that's 20 degrees increase. Right. That's insane at the current rate, that's the projection. Um, and it's saying that by 2050, we could be in globally dangerous levels, uh, which are melting the ice caps, causing the oceans to rise. I mean, you know the swan song, we've all heard this on the news. Um, but it is genuinely real. We cannot emphasise this point enough. Mm. Why is it that we still have people that don't believe that this is true? Yeah. <laughs> I. What, how is it that people are still convinced that we are not in as dire of a situation as we are? 
we can only assume it's a political gap. Like, it, it is becoming less and less of a contingent. Like, it is a minority of people who do not believe in climate change anymore. Right. Um, but it seems it's it seems to be entirely a green thing. It seems to be people who have invested and made money from the coal industries and from oil industries um, who are lobbying for this not to change because it is changing um, as we speak. Mm. There are international climate coalitions talking about how to cut emissions, uh, and this has major consequences for anyone who's invested in this kind of business. The prime example, of course, being the Adani mine. Right, yeah, of course, that's been certainly one of the big uh, talking points around this over the last sort of... I guess, 12 to 18 months here in Queensland, particularly. Yeah. But absolutely. all around Australia. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's only a microcosm of this whole deal. Mm. Um, because, you know, Australia, one of our greatest things is our mineral resources, and one of those greatest mineral resources is coal and natural gas. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's a major issue. Yeah, of course. Especially since it, at, you know, for the last 50 years, has been such a large part of our economy. Yeah, absolutely. So now we're kind of trying to figure out how if we can wheel away from that while keeping our economy strong yeah. um, in investing in natural resources. So that's a major part of the debate happening right now. Uh, and that kind of brings us around to talking about something you may have noticed mm. uh, on your daily commute. Yes, <laughs> particularly uh, if you're a, a resident of Brisbane or any of the major cities. Yeah, so um, particularly this week, Brisbane, Perth and Melbourne have all been majorly affected by the Extinction Rebellion protest. Mm. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about Extinction Rebellion? I'd love to, Harry. Uh, Extinction Rebellion was established in the United Kingdom in May 2018 with about 100 academics signing a call to action uh, in support in October 2018 uh, and launched at the end of October by Roger Hallam and Gail Bradbrook and other act activists uh, from campaign group Rising Up. Uh, Extinction Rebellion reached Australia in a big way early last year with protests breaking out across the country in March. Techniques such as consistently disrupting traffic uh, protesters locking or gluing themselves to roads and infrastructure have been employed, uh, which has led to a large number of arrests and some very alarming proclamations by the nation and state governments. Yeah, so uh, the Queensland state government, the Palaget government, mm. have come out and said, yeah, we would really love the uh, ability to put protesters in prison. For up to two years. Yeah, for up to two years, That's which is genuinely... Like, I took a quote from the uh, the New South Wales government website here earlier. The right to protest... Uh, <laughs> The right to protest peacefully is a defining feature of liberal democracy, a system of government characterised by the tolerance of dissenting minority opinion. That is a quote from the New South Wales government website. Mm. Uh, and our own government is currently proposing measures such as throwing protesters in prison for up to two years and cutting welfare checks of anyone who is involved in Extinction Rebellion protest. Which is a bit of a classist comment, just, just, just to put that out there, to just kind of say... Oh, these people are protesting climate change. Oh, so they're poor. Yeah, so this was uh, <laughs> put forward by Peter Dutton. Uh, do we find out what his actual position is? Uh, he's against it. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I mean in the government. Oh, we... I, I believe he's the Minister for Federal Affairs. Cool, or... okay, because he's changed a few in the last uh, couple of cabinet reshuffles. Mm. Um, but yeah, the Minister for Federal Affairs, Peter Dutton, a well-known face uh, in uh, issues of climate change and issues of immigration particularly, um, increasingly problematic as time goes by. Uh, yeah, let's talk about this. Yeah, so I guess to play kind of uh, devil's advocate to what we believe specifically, um, but also to acknowledge what is definitely a... a well, maybe let's talk about what we believe first. Where do we... Well, where, where do you fall on this issue? Um, well, you know, it's a tough one. I, I definitely uh, would say I associate close with the climate protesters. However, I acknowledge the argument 
um, that they may be doing more harm than good. I don't agree with it, but I acknowledge where it's coming from. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, I'm very on the fence about this one, personally. I guess, the, I honestly would have probably been more um, against <laughs> Extinction Rebellion if there wasn't such an obscene media response to it. Particularly if we look at sources like the Courier Mail, I see that every day. The things that are going up on that, you know, on that front page every day are pathetic. We were watching news articles about it before, and even the language, like uh, Extinction Rebellion protesters infiltrating government spaces. Right. No, no, no. They, they said that they were infiltrating a shopping centre. Yes. By which they mean they went into a shopping centre. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Just... we're, we're referring to these people as, like, you know, Soviet spy, uh, like, co- like Soviet spies in the Cold War or something. Yeah, Covert yeah. Covert ops. Like... And particularly coverage from uh, Nine News and... Um, the Murdoch Press. The Murdoch Press, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. It's... And, and, I mean, it should be acknowledged that some of these protesters are using radical devices. Um... One of them, uh, they're referred to as uh, something dragons. Uh, and they're, they're essentially... Lock-on devices. Yeah, these lock-on devices that where they put their arms through PVC pipes and things, and essentially they make it makes it very hard for them to be removed. Yeah, uh, a case s- on day of recording, today on the Friday that we're recording, there was a guy who locked himself onto the Willing Jolly Bridge. He attached his arms yeah, to a morning. car, uh, a car that which was then turned off and unable to be moved and had to be removed with power tools by police officers mm. um, in order to... Disruption has been the main catch cry of this organisation. Right. Is this doing more harm than good, though? Yeah, well, that's the question, isn't it? See, you know, logically, I look at the big picture and I go, well, can you do more harm than good when... Given the facts. Yeah, right. given the fact what we're, what they're protesting against is the imminent heat death of civilization. Right. And I think one of the things that really irritates me is, like I said, that the way that this is being portrayed in the media, because the vast, vast majority of these protesters aren't doing anything wrong they're doing incredibly peaceful protests and when they're being told to move on by police they're moving on yeah and you notice like anyone who's against the extinction rebellion protest including like the liberal government and elements of the labor government get very very careful as soon as someone asks them the question do you think that this is a free speech issue do you think that by arresting someone or by cutting their welfare that is infringing on their right to protest and their right to free speech which is written into our constitution and is in is a cornerstone of a democratic liberal government. Mm. Uh, and the moment that question's asked, they're all like, "No, no, we respect the right to protest." Right. Yeah, it's a very tricky one for those politics. We just want to stop them from doing it. Right. And I mean, I, a point that I saw that I thought was quite interesting was someone who pointed out that um, this is a essentially an ineffective protest because it's going against the will of the working class. Uh, which are the people that it's trying to save. And I think that that's not entirely true because you cannot say that this is affecting your commute to work when you're going to a job you hate. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot just, like, switch up your tone when it's convenient for your argument. Uh, I saw a tweet about that earlier. It's like, why couldn't they shut down the other bridge so I could be half an hour late? Right, exactly, yeah. That's not an excuse. Um, With that said, there obviously are legitimate, um, you know, things that this is affecting. Um, Yeah, and also to that point earlier, it's also making a lot of assumptions about the kind of people who are protesting. Like, a lot of the protesters are fully employed, Mm. um, sometimes wealthy, often middle-class, often white workers. Like, it's the demographics displayed in this protest are actually fairly broad Mm. and fairly across um, uh, demographic lines. Right, yeah, across across the spectrum of society. Yeah, Yeah, that's... And let's not forget, this was a movement initially started by university professors academics 
Yeah, a movement yeah. founded on academic science right. and founded on the science of climate change, which we've talked about before, is unimpeachable. Mm. And I mean, it's so it's a very it, look. It's a complicated issue, and we're not here to you know completely st- you know sway one way or the other. And obviously, there is certainly legitimacy to the argument that um, you know, like law enforcement and things like that, shouldn't be you know spending diverted, their time yeah. diverted from from other issues. Um, with that said, they don't have to be. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Because okay, at not... a point when there's you know three protesters on a road and there's seven police officers there, you ask, well, did they need to be? Yeah, there was an article this morning talking about the protest in Melbourne, saying that the police presence was almost equal person on person to the amount of protesters. Right. Which just which seems opportunistic. It seems like an obscene amount of police presence. Right. Um, it, yeah, it's 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 it almost seems like a um, a publicity stunt mm. by whoever's organising the police. Right. So you may be sitting at home thinking, well, how does this affect me in little old southeast Queensland? Little old southeast Queensland, we're operating out of Brisbane. Uh, how this affects us is very intimately and very soon. Yeah. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, if you live in Brisbane, it can, it can already get hot. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite warm in this part in of the world. In this tropical part of, yeah. And so, logic, we're also on the coast. Yeah. So, logically, with the ice caps melting and the oceans rising and things getting hotter, things probably won't go great for us. Yeah, especially since Brisbane as well is on a, a river. Yeah. <laughs> So we have an actual report here from a PhD at UQ. It's a peer-reviewed report that has been published, uh, and it has found that temperature increases from climate change and urban growth will make Brisbane a difficult place to live within the next 30 years, and more people will be at risk from dying from extreme heat. This is from Dr. Sarah Chapman at the University of Queensland. The report also mentioned the record-breaking heat waves and bushfire activity that Queensland has suffered over the last few years, which we are very intimately familiar with right. over the last few weeks. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, I don't know, I guess... Th- 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 I feel very personal about this one because there are people I know that I care about a lot that just are not on this... You know, do not hold this belief that this is something we need to like, take seriously. Yeah, it's, it's astounding. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just... It, it's at a point now where I feel like there are people who just can't be convinced that this is something that we need to take action on. Absolutely. Who just have their heads buried so deep in the sand that it's just pointless. Yeah, so five of the hottest years on record have been in the 2000s. Uh, we've had more forest fires than at any point in recorded history. Um, uh, we have had more heat waves than at any point in recorded history. Uh, when asked on what a future directly influenced by unimpeded climate change might look like, climate scientists have reported that it will be a wasteland with uncontrollable fires burning everywhere, not just in Australia, um, and people rapidly dying out from the heat. This is not a leftist, globalist conspiracy. We are not saying this from the position of two people on the left. This is unequivocal scientific fact. So when we (laughs) say all this, and then cycling back to, do I think this is too far? I guess I have to answer no. Because, you know, what is the alternative? I mean... We are making some progress as a globe mm. with our um, response and action on climate change, but whether it's enough or not is way up in the air. Right. Like, you know, our government was recently called out on a global stage by being uninvited to a global climate initiative because we weren't making enough progress with our climate change goals. Yeah. That's embarrassing. It's pathetic. <laughs> the it Morrison is. government has on multiple occasions been called out for its human rights initiative and its, cl- and its global climate change initiative. Like, the world is laughing at us because they're moving on and we are not. Mm. I guess my next question kind of pertaining to this, Harry, is, is quite closely pertaining to the news, you know, sort of sphere of this. Sure, fine. How do we, as people that are just trying to be neutral with the news and get the information, approach 
something like the Courier Mail, which almost every day is printing these incredibly biased articles uh, denouncing organisations like Extinction Rebellion. Don't. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. Yeah, I mean... But how do we tackle the spread of misinformation? Right, so... To... Yeah. Don't engage with media outlets that you know are spreading misinformation. Like, you know, anyone who has read the Courier-Mail, anyone who has eyes in their head and has read the actual news aspects of it knows that it is not an unbiased newspaper. Mm. Um, very few that left are anything from the Murdoch press. Like, you hear, like, in the left, you hear it thrown around a lot that, like, you know, some Murdoch papers are very good for business news, the main one being the Australian, of course. Uh, but they do not have a great track record in terms of activism, in terms of climate change, in terms of um, immigration. Honestly, you just need to read through the Wikipedia page. Mm. Um, so my advice would be do your research, don't engage with anything that doesn't have a good track record, try to think critically. That's good advice. Thank you, Harry. What, about you? <laughs> what, do, what do you think? Um, I mean, I guess the my main concern about it just comes to the fact that for so many people... Uh, the Korean Mail is just the paper, you know? It's just a thing you read when you're a Queenslander and you want to know what's going on. And they just don't understand this concept of media bias because it's just a thing that they read. They don't think about it in that way. And so it just terrifies me that there's this kind of essentially propaganda going around that's supporting an ideology and supporting a side of politics. And that's not the point of journalism. Yeah, and I mean, the main alternative these days is to look at your phone and look at news alerts. And mm. while that is valid to a point, it can get overwhelming and you you never really know where the information is coming from, particularly if you're just looking at the Facebook news feed. Right, yeah, it can be anything, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we get bombarded with it. It's very hard to think, to realise what's true and what's not. It's mm. Yeah, it's a tricky time um, to keep informed in. Yeah, absolutely. To keep informed reliably. And my, yeah, my only advice is to think critically, be choosy with your sources, uh, try to pick if you ha- if you must read a newspaper, the best one uh, I would say would be the Guardian. Mm. Um, like Australian is good for business news. I will not deny that. Um, yeah, yeah. If you're in Toowoomba, the Chronicle's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very funny joke for about twenty people. Yeah, <laughs> probably half our listening audience. To be fair, true. But, um, true. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess, our the main backbone of our deep dive on climate change and particularly its role in Australia at the moment. We hope we've kind of maybe cleared up some stuff for you. Hopefully we haven't been too, <laughs> too yeah. upset. <laughs> I think I was very upset for most of that. Yeah, well, you know, we said when we started this podcast... That I'm we mad! <laughs> we weren't going to attempt to hide our opinions or biases because no. that's just not how news works. Like, you know, we can pretend not to have them, but that wouldn't be accurate. It's much better for you to know where we stand so you can make informed opinions. Yeah, and our, and our sources from this are coming from sources that are individually and peer-reviewed to say that they are some of the least biased sources in the world. Whether you like it or not, I'm so sorry. The ABC is a very neutral source and you can't just say it isn't. <laughs> Uh, we should probably talk about some of the main arguments against Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, people saying things like, you know, uh, these people out there protesting, like they should be doing something tangible, like riding a bike to work, like mm. I do. Right, right, right. Um, or having a keep cup. And it's like, yes, that is, you absolutely should be doing that. But A, for starters, I can guarantee you nearly everyone in the Extinction Rebellion protest is doing something yeah, of that sort. Yeah. Uh, and B, 
it is not enough for us to individually try and tackle our own carbon footprints anymore. We yeah. need holistic global change because some of the biggest industries that impact on climate change are agriculture and fossil fuels. Mm. Uh, and those are two of our main industries, agriculture and fossil fuels. And we need to regulate how we deal with those and what our approach to climate change on a national level is. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, like, like you were saying, if you're riding your bike to work, driving the car less, fantastic, give yourself a pat on the back, but don't sit there and pretend that's enough because it's not. It's a systematic thing that we need to change with legislation and with the cultural understanding. It's not just about keep cups and running shoes. Absolutely. Uh, on that point you were saying before about people in the... Uh, oh, that's completely gone out of my head. What was it you were talking about? Disruption of working class. Oh, 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 oh the sort of, I guess, the, um, the argument that uh, the Extinction Rebellion is uh, counterintuitive because it's disadvantaging the people that it's trying to i guess incite movement from sure yeah it is like a minor a very minor disruption to your daily routine i can guarantee uh raging bushfires and global heat waves are going to be a lot more disruptive in 20 to 30 years and if you're an older person yeah that may not be your problem now but how could anyone be so callous mm. as to not want to leave a better world for the future yeah is my opinion I think that's the takeaway. <laughs> yeah, we'll end it on that, I guess. Um, <laughs> not the most optimistic episode we've ever done. Well, but it, I, it couldn't be. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah, so um, I guess we'll finish off for the day then. Yeah, just a few quick acknowledgements, as always. Uh, we did forget to do them last week, so I'm going to really emphasize them this We're week. We're going to yell them. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Alex Smith. Uh, <laughs> For writing our intro and outro, you are a god amongst musicians. You're a babe. Thank you, Zane C. Weber and the That's Not Canon podcast team for putting us up every fortnight. Absolutely. Thank you to the University of Queensland for hosting us and our uh, larrikin misdemeanors. Yes, and our yelling. And just on the topic of TNC, if you're not familiar with the platform, please get on there and check out some of the other podcasts. There's some awesome stuff on there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I myself am guest starring oh, yes, of course. on a podcast episode. Uh, I think it's out in a couple of weeks to a month. Uh, but it is the lovely uh, Stumble Through podcast. Do check that out. We'll yeah. advertise it on our page when the episode is coming up. Fantastic stuff. I look forward to it. Uh, Chris, would you like to round us out on our shower thought? Yes, of course. Uh, our shower thought for the day goes as such. Adulthood is like losing your mum in the grocery store, but for the rest of your life. And on that note, I've been Christopher Payton. I am Harry Wallace. <laughs> and we'll see you next time on New Sense. Thank you very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.